Turn with me to John chapter 14. This will be the last sermon in John 14 for those of you. It doesn't matter. For, for me, it's a very sad day. I'd like to spend more time with John in his 14th chapter, but we need to keep moving. So much uh, comfort in the Christian life is lost because of confusion or, or even, I would say, false doctrine. It's probably not shocking to a lot of you. But for the sake of our subject matter today, the function and the work of the Holy Spirit has left many of God's children confused, discouraged, and often in deep despair, causing them to doubt at times their salvation or their security. They can't sing with confidence the song we just sang. Men, in my opinion, who are not careful to properly explain God's word have developed entire systems that have left Christians in crippling bondage. Christians find themselves pursuing an emotional high. I want to experience Jesus again. And so they, they look for those supernatural experiences or those supernatural powers or extraordinary gifts as it relates to the Spirit. When the only solutions to these teachings seems to be, in the end, if you can't find it, if you can't fabricate it, then you fake it. And one is left feeling, I think, emptier than when they first started their journey towards this euphoric experience within the Spirit. Now, I've spoken with many of you that are here today and a lot of who are not able to make it today about this negative effect that they've had uh, by the charismatic movement, this uh, over, I think, over, over emphasis of the Spirit, a wrong, I should say, emphasis leading to mis, uh, a misappropriation of doctrine. Now, on the other side of this, Many of you grew up in a very conservative church background, as I did. You were not trapped in the snares of trying to speak in tongues or see a second awakening of the Spirit. So then what ends up happening is you, you actually lose the benefits of the Spirit. And here's why. Concern of not looking like a certain movement. Not looking like a, the charismatic movement. So the Holy Spirit is often left out of sermons, or the influence of the Holy Spirit is left out of sermons or Sunday school lessons. Sadly, the importance of the Trinity and Christ's interaction with the Spirit and His role in regeneration are clearly taught. The, the ongoing effects and the benefits to the believer are lost in fear of not being something else. I can remember hearing sermons about the Holy Spirit as growing up and even references to the Holy Spirit uh, influencing the preacher as we heard even from uh, David today. But it never really brought me any sort of, I would say, ongoing or real comfort. It was just kind of something someone said. I was told that the Spirit lives in me and, and can see my actions and knows my thoughts. How many of you have heard that before? So, never think that I'm going to get away with a sin. <laughs> the Spirit sees everything you will do, say, or think. So really, the Spirit just kind of becomes another form of uh, Santa Claus, right? You better watch out, he's making a list, and he's checking it twice. And you don't want to end up on the naughty list of the Spirit. 
I think what's robbed me and thousands of other Christians is the spirit is that the spirit was used as a fear of or fear or or guilt tactic to create within us a moral behavior, a better moral behavior. Morality was the object of this type of teaching, not comfort and joy. Well, today we have the joy of learning, I think, an astonishing comfort that the Spirit brings to us to the believer in John chapter 14. The greatest joy of preaching verse by verse, in my opinion, is I never have to wonder what I'm going to preach next. But two, is that through the book, you are exposed to all of God's truth. Things that often um, we, the, the teacher may not have thought to cover. So pastors who tend to pick and choose their topics will overlook subjects or emphasize one side of theology. But today I'm so thankful that here and our elders, we try to work through books of the Bible to be exposed to all of Christ's teaching. And we will experience that today. This is one of those meals, because we, we are told that we're to come and feast on Christ. These are one of those meals that I'm truly excited for us to sit down with and enjoy a taste of Christ that many of you have never experienced before. I know for whatever reason, there's this thing about hot chicken in Nashville now. So when people visit, they're like, I want to have hot chicken. So we sit down and, you know, it'll say something like 7 out of 10. I'm like, oh, I can handle hot things. I'm like, right. <laughs> and then I get to experience this with them. I don't eat it. I watch them eat it. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about us tasting this side of Christ in ways that I think many of us have never done so before. So let's go ahead and jump in. A little bit, just a, a background because it will make sense of what Jesus says. Um, this is the upper room. So Jesus is about to go to the cross. This is his last moment intimately with all of his disciples this is his last moment to say what he needs to say to them. Judith, Judas has just betrayed him. Uh, so that, that moment has taken place. And Jesus has let them know that he's about to leave them. Which there begins to be a rumble and a panic. And of course, um, the disciples are not very excited about this. Peter, you know, he shouts out, uh, no, you're never going to leave us. I'll die for you. Of course, then Jesus tells them, well, you're going to deny me. So all of this is going on in the upper room. And there's definitely some discomfort that jesus is observing so what we're about to read is a very tender shepherd who wants to leave his disciples with the most comfort that can be spoken i think in what i've seen from the text now you have to understand their perspective and if you do understand it then what jesus says will help us so they love this man clearly they love him they've left everything including their families they they have been taught by him for three years they've sacrificed for him and now jesus says i'm going to leave you that would make anybody who has made all of these sacrifices uneasy now here's the perspective that jesus is presenting to them in this context he says now i know you want me to be here but i'm going to send someone else in my place and it's the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to come, and He's going to replace me. And then He'll be with you, and He'll be in you. He says, with you now, He'll be in you. So here's, you have to, this is their perspective. I mean, imagine if the person who stepped into this pulpit today was not me, but Jesus. 
And I mean the physical Jesus. You can see the eye color that he has. You can hear his voice inflection. You can see how tall he was, which he would, I mean, geographically speaking, he would have been a shorter man. Um, if you could see his hair color, you could see the way he interacts with you. I mean, you would see them, you would see Jesus as they would be seeing Jesus. They fell in love with this man. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave and send you someone else. Like if I were to tell my children, I'm going to leave you, but don't worry, I'll send you someone else. They're going to go, we don't want anyone else. We want our dad. In their mind, they're saying, we don't want anyone or anything else. We want you, Jesus. This isn't comforting. This is not good news. Well, you can see why the disciples were struggling and they pushed back against this. Now, but there's a very important theological reason why Jesus had to leave. And if you don't understand this, then um, the, the reason for Jesus to be, I mean, why couldn't he just stay? I mean, it would make sense for him to stay after he raised from the dead. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I think it will help you in making this connection of why Jesus left and finding comfort in him leaving. First of all, uh, Jesus leaving this earth was to help provide a fuller understanding of his teaching. I mean, he tells them multiple times in chapter 14 through 17 I have to leave because clearly you're struggling with what I'm telling you. Like you're not believing me. Even in the passage, uh, multiple times, they question Jesus. Of course, he rebukes them and says, after three years, after everything you've seen, and that's to remind them that that moment when it's time for him to leave, there's a reason for that. And that is the spirit will come because Jesus says in John 14, uh, 15 through following, that when I rise and I go to the Father, all of this will then come to light. You will then believe what I'm having to say. So the Spirit must come and bring to knowledge or bring to light that which Jesus has done. Number two, constant communion. Constant communion with Christ. Unless you are directly in His presence, your communion with Him was always limited. I mean, we do you know who probably had the most communion with Jesus while He was on this earth? The ones who get named the most in the conversations, right? So you got, you got Peter, you got John. Anybody know who the third one is? Just test and see if we're still awake. I'll let you think about that and come back. But not all of the disciples. Judas, not Iscariot. We're going to learn in this passage. So apparently there's another Judas. We don't know much about the guy. But clearly he didn't have a lot of interactions with um, the ones who were close-knit to Jesus. So there comes a problem where communing with him, imagine if Christianity grows, what, are we going to get an amphitheater of a million people so that Jesus can speak and commune with all of us? That's not possible. And I think the expansion of Jesus' message, it's very clear, who does he commission? He ends up commissioning the disciples and then he sends them out, right? So the expansion, so if the proximity of the message was always connected to Jesus, people had to come to Jesus to get the message, it would not spread as far. So there's some theological and practical reasons of why Jesus had to leave. I think the most important theological role is that Jesus had to fulfill his role as our advocate, as our great high priest. Probably the part of the gospel that's lost more than anything else is that of Jesus' ascension. We'd speak of his death, burial, and resurrection. But unless Jesus ascends, you and I don't have an advocate. This is Hebrews, right? He was sympathetic. So Jesus right now is your advocate, meaning he's standing before the Father, telling him all of the reasons why there is no condemnation for Mandy and for Mason, 
And for there's no condemnation. He's advocating you. Uh, David, I'm going to go ahead and switch over to this microphone. Reasons why we give. We need a new microphone. Now, of course, at the time, the disciples did not fully understand the significance of Jesus' departure. He would say things like, you should be excited. I'm going to the side of the Father. He says in our text, of course, they're like, no, we want you here. They don't understand Jesus being at the side of the Father means they now have an advocate. The great high priest is now fulfilling his role. So Jesus gives these men words of comfort and encouragement. And this is what we will look at for the rest of our time together this morning. So we'll begin in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, helper is a good translation here, but like any language, much can be lost in picking a word that fits a, min- uh, that fits a meaning. So the Greek word here, most of you have probably heard, which is called Paraclete, or the correct word is parakletos. The word is, um, this word is only used by John here in this context. And it's only used one other time in 1 John, uh, which we'll look at a little bit later. But in this meaning, the word often can mean to call alongside, hence to encourage or to exhort. So helper seems to fit there, can fulfill that quality now jesus is speaking to secular greeks and this bible was these words were written so that secular you know modern day greeks would read them and so and the modern day understanding of this would be a legal assistance or advocate someone who helps another in court whether as an advocate a witness or representative now what you and i think of is when we need counsel when we need help on a legal side, a legal counsel, we go get ourselves a lawyer, someone who's been trained, someone who has multiple degrees and letters before their name. We want someone who knows what they're doing, right? So that's what we think of. But in the modern, or, sorry, in this day and age in Greek, that's not the kind of advocate that would happen. So if you were to stand before the court, you would actually go find someone who knew you well, someone who could speak on your behalf who could defend your character. Typically, it was someone you loved, your, your best friend, someone you grew up with. And you would go to them and say, listen, I need you to represent me. I need you to speak on my behalf of our history together, to, to, to present well who I am. So when Jesus is using this word, paraclete, the term here is not only just helper, but helper of an intimate level, someone who knows them well. So this is helpful, but does not really, I think, uh, present a full meaning. It's, like I said, it's hard sometimes when you're going from one language to another. Uh, so throughout, we're going to look at all of the uses. So when we look at those, I think we can formulate the meaning of a paraclete or helper here. So multiple times, we're just going to look at, we will go through these as we preach through John. But Jesus uh, r- refers to the paraclete as Someone that teaches them, that testifying on the behalf of Jesus, this is John 15, 26. Convincing the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 7 through 11. Guiding the disciples into all truth and telling them about the things to come, so speaking of the future, so 16, 13. So 
It's hard to say just one thing of helper because there's so much that's wrapped up. You have guide and you have confrontation of sin and you have testifying and teaching. So helper is one part of it's helpful. One commentator put it this way I found helpful. It is understandable then that parakletos has been variously translated as comforter, teacher, advocate, counselor, helper, guide. None of these on its own satisfactorily represent all the functions of the parakletos. And for that reason, some people prefer to leave it untranslated and use it in its anglicized form of the translation, which is paraclete. So now I want to go back to verse 16 and point out something that is very helpful in relation to this word, paraclete, helper. So because our translation has helper, we'll refer to it, um, but I may, I may go back and forth, but at least you'll know what it means now. So verse 14, uh, 16, it says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, it's important to see that Jesus was referring to himself here as a helper. Because he uses a very important word. What does he say? Another. I'm going to send you, what? Another helper. Now, John, who wrote a, a, an epistle, a letter, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, this is where the only other time paraclete is used. And this is what John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. You know what that word there is? Paraclete. So helper there wouldn't work, would it? We have a helper? No, we have an advocate. We have a paraclete. So children, if you sin, we have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Someone who will defend your case. When you sin, you have a defender. You have someone who represents you. Now, this word, another, can be tricky. <laughs> if I were to ask you if you wanted another cup of coffee, and you said yes, and I walk out with a brand new mug and coffee in it, that's probably not what you were thinking. You're thinking, same cup, more coffee, right? <laughs> so we have to be careful here. What is Jesus saying? Another paraclete. Is he saying something that's completely different? Something that you've not held before, seen before? I don't think so. We'll see here that Jesus is referencing himself. Now, I believe Jesus was comforting his disciples with the reality that another like him is going to live with them. And if you start walking through the life of the disciples, and if Jesus is saying, I'm a paraclete, that's what I am. I am this advocate. I am this teacher. I am this guide. So if you think through everything that the disciples experienced, they experienced Jesus as their teacher, their shepherd, their comforter, their reminder, that which spoke of future hope, speaking of the future. So in connection, Jesus says, I will send you another just like me. Just like me. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And what is an orphan? Children without parents present, right? Without a home. Now, this is profound because Jesus says, I am not going to leave my children without the, my presence with them. Of course, in the mind of the disciple, they have never experienced the presence of the Spirit in this way. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was with them. This is when Jesus says, he's with you now, but will be in you. They would see the power of this presence of the Spirit, of course, they would see it, they've seen it multiple times throughout the Old Testament. This, but this is a new concept to have the Spirit within them. 
the enjoyment and benefits the disciples experience with Jesus' presence, right? Seeing him, interacting with him, receiving his teaching, his care, his love, his guidance, his protection, his rebuke. None of that goes away is what Jesus is saying. What I have been for you, I will send to you. Now, with this understanding, I want to read the rest of the chapter and believe what Jesus is saying in whole. So we're going to read all of it, starting in verse 19. With this understanding of paraclete. So it says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Well, now that makes sense. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and I and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's important. I'm going to stop here. It's important for us to understand. They still don't get it. They think Jesus is about to rise the Israel nation to its full force and establish their kingdom. And Jesus will be present. So Jesus is saying, how is it you're going to influence us, but the world's not going to see? Are you going to be like invisible to them? <laughs> In a way, yes. So Jesus answers them. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, yeah, Judas, those of you whose eyes were opened will see me. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, oh, sorry, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the, whole, but the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it took place. It takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go. Now, very quickly, for the sake of time, I want to draw three comforts to the believer Jesus presents here in this short dialogue and these verses that are with the concept of the coming paraclete or the coming comforter, guide, helper. So if you like to take notes, I, I have a sermon for you so you can take notes. I see some of you have pens out. Yeah. Gary is excited. <laughs> so I even have sub points for you today. So there you go. Get those pens ready. Here's the first comfort. How we receive the Spirit should be a comfort to us. How we receive the Spirit. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Now, if you did not, were not able to hear my sermon a few weeks ago on obeying commandments and love, 
go back and encourage you to listen to that, it will make this a little bit more sense. He is not saying uh, that the way in which you gain love is through obedience. He's saying obedience is the evidence of love. It's what's coming out of you. And he says, if this is true of you, and obedience, he does not mean morality. He means believing the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This command. You believe that? You obey that? The Holy Spirit will come and make his home in you. And this is accomplished not only by your status, if you believe, but also by the request of Jesus. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. He does not say, I will ask the Father if. If you meet these requirements, he says, no, if you are my children, I ask the Father, and he grants it. Now, the, the reason why this is important is that there is so much teaching today about what you must do in order to have, one, the Spirit at all, Number two, the second blessing of the Spirit. Or three, the influence and work of the Spirit. We sing all these kind of songs about the Spirit coming down, the Spirit doing this. and spirit. Let me tell you this. If God came and made a home with inside of you, He's not sharing that home with anyone else. And He's taking the entire house for Himself. To go ahead and use the metaphor, you can't get more of the Spirit than you already have. He fully dwells within you. Now, you can decide to allow what control happens. This is Paul. What he says, don't be drunk with wine. Where's an axis? But be filled with the Spirit. What he's saying, give control. Allow the influence. The comfort that is here, friends, is that your performance or the lack thereof will never call into question the residence of the Spirit inside of you. Never. If you did not earn to receive it, and it was a gift by the request of Christ to you, there is no reason to ever fear and doubt that it can be removed. Now, let me tell you, I have been on the phone with different pastors today, or not today, this week, and we Christians can do very dark things, horrible things, to each other, to ourselves. Um, this is why he wrote First John. If you sin... We think of acceptable sins, lying, cheating, you know, speeding. There was no clarification on sin, when you sin, period, right? You have an advocate. That advocate lives inside of you. <laughs> that is great comfort to be reminded by Christ. So first of all, this indwelling and the power of the Spirit comes to you not by your performing well or what you have done or not done. It's the work of Christ through grace. Secondly, how the Spirit can never be removed. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father and He will give it to you, a helper, to be with you forever. Connect these first two points together. Just in case you weren't sure, I thought I'd just save that last part for you. Jesus says it's forever, pretty much means forever. I don't think there's any other meaning for forever than forever. So, how we receive the Spirit should bring us comfort. How the Spirit could never be removed should bring us comfort. And number three, how the Spirit is another comforter, or comforter to us as Jesus. How the Spirit is another comforter. And let's clarify right now, what is another? There are three ways the Spirit is another comforter. And here's the first reason. 
Jesus, or the, I'm sorry, the Spirit, the paraclete, reveals the truth of Christ to our hearts. Reveals the truth of Christ to our heart. Look at verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So they clearly loved Jesus. This is evidence. And they followed him, but they lacked a fuller understanding of who Jesus truly is. And he says to his disciples, don't worry. When he comes, you will then gain full knowledge of how it is that you're in me and I'm in the Father and we're all together and it will bring you comfort. Now that word in is tricky. Like what does he mean by in? That, that, that can be a confusing word. I think the next section here is helpful when Jesus starts talking about this concept of residency. He says, I will make my home with you. Right? It'll help explain this concept of end. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Let's just walk through this whole thing. Where does the love of Christ come from in our hearts? Through the Spirit, right? Regeneration. It's a gift if it's a grace. So he's saying, listen, if you love me, my Father will love you. Your performance cannot gain the love of the Father, nor can it lose the love of the Father. It is gained by simply your affection and love for Jesus. What's interesting here is he doesn't say at what level either. It's not the quality of your love that gains you. It's not the quality of your faith that gains you. It's the quality of the one to whom you're putting your love in, right? So this is what he says. And my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. This is a home. I love that they use this language. It's a home, not a place of fear, not a place of guilt to earn favor. It's a place of joy. To find shelter and comfort. If you come from a good home or you have a good home now. You think of home when you are far from it. Been away from it. Or in a horrible situation. What do you want to do? You want to go home. (laughs) Where there's comfort. And joy and rest and peace. The father says with Christ I will come and make my home with you. Which means wherever you travel you'll never be outside the home Of the Father. And if you're like, I'm not quite sure I understand that, that's good, because that means you have that much more to learn. It's exciting to know what you don't know. It's a good thing to know what you don't know. We're gonna dive into it a little bit. Let me remind us of John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. So they're like, We have dedicated our life to you, Jesus. You're about to leave. He says, Oh, don't worry. I'm about to make my home within you. As I reminded before, orphans are children without parents or home. And he says, you will not be without a parent or without home. Jesus promises us that we will have this place and it will be within us and it will not be removed forever. Now, trust me, as I've been battling through this, why I have probably taken so long, I didn't want to try and 
cram all of this in a couple of sermons, so I wanted to save this last one so I had time to ruminate on it. This is difficult. You may not feel his presence. You're like, okay. I don't feel like there's any home of God in me right now. What in the world is that supposed to feel like? What is that supposed to be experience like? I think the confusion here is in the lack of teaching in the area. We don't know how to give proper credit to the work of God in our heart. And so because of that, we should see the work of God, we ignore it. Or we chop it off to something else. Or we don't understand. So this next section, I think, is going to help us in understanding if this residency has taken up, this paraclete has come, and it's made our home within us, then what does that look like? So here's some more subpoints underneath the subpoints for you that like subpoints. The Spirit teaches and reminds us the truths of Christ. What does he say? Unless I leave and the Spirit comes, you won't know these truths. You won't know. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Because it's obvious Jesus was repeating himself through his entire ministry and they still didn't understand. He says, we are going to permanently fix that problem. So we can have joy in learning, growing, maturing, understanding because we live with Jesus. So, the, so the, here's the truth. If your love and infection, uh, infection, affection, we've got a lot of infection going on right now, right? Love has increased, your knowledge has increased, your understanding, you can understand the truth of Christ more today than you did yesterday. Unfortunately, we've not been trained to go, oh man, that's the spirit residing in me. That's the paraclete doing the promise fulfilled of Jesus. If you understand the gospel at all, the Father's at home in you. What? Yeah. Like, lives in, I don't know how. I mean, is he in your gut? I don't know. It doesn't say. But he's inside. Working out. Encouraging. So the Bible, the Spirit takes the Bible and brings understanding to our hearts and minds. This is why the preaching and the sacraments are so important to us. In cooperation with the written word of God, the spirit, the paraclete, the advocate comes. And what does he say? Brings to remembrance all that I have said. Clarifies, brings to faith. So when these are preached over us, the spirit will then illuminate, bring them to. If you if you walk away ever from a sermon and you say, wow. That truth makes me trust Christ more. I guarantee you it wasn't the preacher. It wasn't how bad he is or how good you might think he is. No one can trust in Christ and make sense of his glory on a spiritual level. A lot of people can know the facts of Jesus. That is different. 
I'm talking about trusting Jesus. You can't do that unless the Spirit lives within you. So if you go, wow, I, I do trust Jesus a lot. <laughs> the helper is doing his job. Sorry, I'm a little excited. Now, some take this verse and think, well, then, see, I don't need to go to church. Spirit lives within me. I don't need the word of God. Spirit lives within me. He's going to teach me all things, remind me of all things. Well, this is why it's important not to uh, deny the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture absolutely says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Why? Because that's where you receive the word. That's how the Spirit works, in correlation together, not separately. But lastly, notice what he says. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Church, this home that Christ has made with you, he lives there to be the advocate for you. When the world and your own sinful heart beats you down and discourages you, the paraclete comes in and says, oh, but the truth of Christ, don't forget the truth. He does not love you. He does not save you. He does not care for you because of your performance. Jesus says, he will remind you of all that I have said. The Spirit is your advocate to remind you that you rightfully belong as a child of God. The Spirit, in other words, testifies. As Jesus guided guided the disciples encouraged them directed them the spirit reminds us now of jesus teaching and he guides us through these dark and difficult times so if you've ever gone through a difficult season in your life and you actually come out with hope what i hope you do is say i'm so glad the spirit lives within me because i would not have hope unless the paraclete brought it I was at a Bible study recently at a men's golf club, and there's a lot of um, a lot of law. Let's just put it that way. A lot of encouragement to do this, do that, do this. And thankfully, somebody boldly spoke up and said, "I'm just be frank. These verses don't bring me any hope." And I was like, "Praise God! Finally, someone. There is no hope in the law because the law only condemns you." And I don't know about you, but my heart was condemned this week about my failure before my father. And the Spirit does that work of, it absolutely brings that guilt. It's part of the work of the Spirit. If you feel sorrowful for sin, thank the Spirit for that. Otherwise, you would probably run headlong into sin and continue in your sin and continue to hurt yourself and not glorify the Father. And when that condemnation sets in, the Spirit quickly comes in and says, Oh, but let me remind you of the truth of hope, of the future. This is speaking of here that Jesus brought them a future hope. I will return, and when I return, I'll make all things new. So please know and be assured that is the work of the Spirit in your life fulfilling the promises that Jesus made in John 14. Now that passage makes sense. Now, there's a side of this I want to I leave you that I probably think means more to me out of this passage than anything else. So I thought I'd save it to the end. Jesus makes this promise. 
And because you don't understand, if we don't, sorry, not you, but if we don't understand the connection between Christ and the Spirit, the promise doesn't mean much. And if I were to promise you one of my children, say, listen, I'm, I'm going to give you one of my children in your place of your life, immediately you're like, wow, the affection that John has for his children, that's an important gift. So do we understand the affection between Jesus and the Spirit? Well, think of it this way. The Spirit was there for Jesus' entire life. The miraculous conception, the Spirit, from the beginning of his birth. And then as he grew, it says that he grew in knowledge underneath what? The influence of the Spirit. He was baptized by the Spirit. Driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted and then cared for. Jesus said he performed his miracles in the power of the Spirit. He would go and pray, resting in the power of the Spirit. Hebrews tells us that he offered himself up as a sacrifice in the power of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying... I would not be able to sacrifice myself without the Spirit's power. And then what does Paul say? He was raised with what power? The Spirit's power raised him. So from birth to the cross to his resurrection, the Spirit was the most intimate companion present with Jesus. It is this very close, intimate friend of Jesus, he says, he has helped me, he's been with me, and now I'm going to leave him with you. And we witnessed what the Spirit did for Jesus. We watched it for his entire life. And then he says, this, this is what I'm going to leave you. So you can trust this comforter. I trust him. He will point you back to my words. He will make you in connection with me. Because the Spirit is in you, therefore it makes you in me. What does it mean in? In complete agreement with all that I am and all that I offer. To be in Jesus is to be in complete agreement. What is crazy to think is that you are such a vile sinner. And then Jesus says, if you love me, You are in complete agreement with the Father. Now you know what it means to be in. He says, oh, and all of this is yours? Because I gave it to you. Because I love you. That's why it's yours. So he will defend your case to the Father as we would seek those whom we love to defend us. He says, oh, he will as one whom who loves me. I'm going to read this to you, and then we'll close. This is from our confession, chapter 5. Because I know in the back of your mind you're thinking, well, if Jesus lives in me, why do I sin? I can't tell you how many times I got that question. Anybody else wonder? I mean, if Jesus lives in me and he's that powerful, then why do I sin? I'm going to read this to you. The perfectly wise, righteous, and glorious God. It is good they start the paragraph with that, because he is wise, and he is righteous often allow his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or take to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them 
to a closer and more constant dependent on him to sustain them. And what is it that sustains us? What word would we now use to say sustains us? Paraclete. (laughs) The paraclete. Sin in your life is that constant reminder you didn't make it. You didn't get there. You didn't figure it out. You need something outside of you. So God in his kindness and his, and his wisdom and his righteousness and his graciousness said, sin will remain so that you will always be dependent upon me. If you sin, John, 1 John 2, 1, you have an advocate with the Father. and He'll take care of your sin. So if you say, I'm in a season of life where I feel like I'm just struggling. Well, this is why you need God's word. Well, if you're struggling, that just means it's a reminder. Stop depending on yourself and start depending on the power of the spirit in your life. And the power of the spirit uses God's word to remind you of his truths. So at this time, gentlemen, we're going to move to the reminder of the table. This table means nothing to you if you're not a believer. If you don't believe in Jesus, his death on the cross is nothing for you. So taking of the elements is not a reminder for you. You aren't putting to remembrance of what Jesus did. If you're taking the elements because you think it's going to do something for you, it will not. But for those of us who are believers, (laughs) the paraclete takes this sensible element, which we taste and see, And it says he uses it to remind us and encourage us and strengthen for us what Christ has done. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us as orphans. That at this very moment, somehow in some way, there aren't 45 different spirits in here. There is one that unify all of us together. Your home is in all of us and therefore that unifies us together within the Father. Lord, thank you for these truths and for encouraging us in our weak and feeble minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.